Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is season two, I guess. Um, we're going to be posting weekly, so stay tuned. I'll post clips on the Instagram. Follow the Instagram if you don't. It's called Uniting Narratives. Yes, there was a name change. And yes, Spencer is not doing the podcast with us anymore. He transferred to go play baseball at Belmont Academy, and we're super excited for him. So hopefully this episode is interesting. Uh, yeah, follow the Instagram. That's all I got. Let's go. Professor Dobsky, thank you for coming onto my podcast as a guest. The podcast is called Uniting Narratives. This is going to be the first episode after our hiatus this summer. I took the summer off, and I have a new vision. Um, we lost Spencer, which I talked about on the social media, but we didn't lose him. <laughs> Still with us. He's, uh, he's playing baseball down south, and he's pursuing his dreams, and we love that. Um, so thank you for coming on here. How do you feel? Yeah, it's I feel great. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm I'm honored to be invited. Happy to be here, and uh, I feel great. I mean, it's the start of a new semester. Uh, I've got a great schedule this year. I teach Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, which means when there's a Monday holiday, uh, I you know that's that's why. By the way, for those of you who are watching this, you're going to see me not in a suit and tie for one of the first uh, first time ever uh, on campus. I, I try and, you know, um, uh, make sure I look uh, professional and take my job seriously. But today I'm, uh, I'm dressing down. <laughs> it's a casual yeah. uh, atmosphere here. That's yeah, no, so I'm feeling good. The, the, the weather finally showed up, yeah. right? Uh, the summer's been so cold and wet. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, finally showed up. I love the heat. Students have been been bemoaning the heat because apparently yeah. the dorm rooms are not uh, sufficiently air oh, conditioned. No, no, no. But I, if I you're love an alumni, it. you know. Now the hotter, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Really? Yeah, you ever I take know. your class outside? Uh, I do. Uh, I have. I, I did. You know, for for years. Now I've been here almost well 20 years. I guess I came here in 2003, hmm. so exactly 20 years. And maybe for the first 15, I mean, I, I never took them outside. Um, but uh, maybe in my old age, I'm just getting lax. But, <laughs> but now that we've got that nice little setup out in the plaza outside of TFAC, um, there's a place where you can you can actually have a kind of class, and and uh, and it's not too bad. So yeah, on occasion, really nice days, I'll take them outside. But uh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the goals of the podcast is to interview professors from different disciplines, students from dis different disciplines as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to go over, I think, your background and yeah. why you became a professor. And then why specifically a political scientist? Yeah, so, I mean, it kind of worked backwards. Um, when, uh, oddly enough, I, I, my family is very, very politically active. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. Um, and uh, my father, my, my, my grandfather, my, my aunts and uncles were, you know, the extended family were all deeply, deeply involved in local politics. Uh, which meant, you know, I was the youngest of four kids, which meant I kind of got dragged to every um, uh, event that my parents were involved in, either actively themselves or supporting one of the family members. And it drove me nuts, you know, and, and I just, I swore to myself I was never, ever going to get involved <laughs> in politics, um, you know, because I got to see it up close and personal. I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So when I went to college, I went to Boston College uh, as an undergrad. Um, I, I wanted to pursue philosophy. And, um, you know, because it was, the, it was the questions about how to live that really were moving me. And when I got to BC, the, the first class I took on philosophy, I can't remember the professor's name now, um, uh, and even if I could, I probably wouldn't say it, but uh, it was on epistemology. <clears throat> and I dropped that so fast 
Uh, because, it, it, and look, and now, you, you know, you talk to me, yeah, epistemology is very important. I love reading about it and studying it and thinking about it. But as, a, as an 18-year-old young man, I mean, what I was driven by was how should I live my life? Mm. Not, you know, what is the right. study of knowledge and how do we know what we know when we know it? You know, I, I just couldn't be bothered with that at the time. I wanted to know what is, what is justice, what is happiness? Are they the same? Are they in, in, at odds with each other? Um, so that was what was moving me. And so for like the first two years at Boston College, I kind of floated around. I tried everything. I explored every possible outlet that I thought would address these concerns. Uh, just so happened, I, I was also interested in taking ancient Greek. Um, that's a much longer, weirder story, but I was studying ancient Greek, and there were there were a lot of grad students. Um, Boston College has a, has a great political science department, and they have a great graduate department, and a lot of the uh, aspiring PhDs in the grad department were studying Greek because they were working on Plato, they were working on right. Aristotle, they were working on Homer, uh, so they had to know the Greek. And so I was taking these you know, intro-level Greek classes with them, uh, and then involved in study groups with them, and you know, after the... the after you know, mem you know, working on the six principal parts of the Greek verbs with them, we would, we would just start shooting the breeze, and the the questions that moved me would come up, and they would say, you know, you really should study politics, and I was like, ah, come on, you yeah. know, no, 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 and I, I resisted as long as I could, and then I finally took a class, uh, uh, very late in my career. I mean, I didn't, I didn't start studying politics until my junior year, really. Uh, and I held off declaring as long as the registrar would allow me. <laughs> and um, I took one class with Chris Brule on Plato's Republic, and it just blew my mind. Um, I mean, I, Was I, it the first time you encountered that text? Yeah. Republic? Okay. Yeah. And in fact, I remember very clearly the first class day of my junior year in that class. And I walked out of there like my head was on fire. And I said, oh, this, yeah. I, I've got to do this. So, so the next two years, it just became all about... Um, studying political philosophy and and so I had because I had already satisfied all my core I, it was political science right. all the time and uh, and it was fantastic and so what happened was I was driven more by the, the subject matter and you know I really wanted to continue an engagement with the subject matter and so it was kind of like well what is the one job out there that I that would allow me to continue to study this Right. You know, to think about it and write about it and, and talk to other people about it. Uh, this is what really gets me excited. And is there another job out there like this? And it turns out <laughs> there is. Yeah. And it's this. Right, right. So, you know, and, and, and um, so there was never, there was never, you know, there was never a moment where I was like, you know, I want to be a professor because that's being a professor is what I want to be. It's, mm -hmm. no, I want to study these things. What's the vocation that will allow right, me what's to practical do that? in the world? Yeah. Right? yeah, well, just how how can I do it? Right? Who's sure. going to pay me to do this? Who's mm. going to pay me to talk about the Republic? Who's going to pay me to talk about Thucydides or Shakespeare? Sure. Or, or we were talking earlier today about uh, communist regimes and political mass murder. Who's who's going to pay me to talk about these things? Right? <laughs> and now they don't pay me a lot, right? Mm. But but you know they do pay me to sure. do this, and and that that really was it. Um, I suppose I mean it was fitting. Um, what, I don't know how long you want me to go on about this, but That's when um, I was uh, born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, and my mother was running a uh, uh, pre-K out of the back of her house, back in wow. the 70s. And so I was literally born into a classroom, yeah. and I was there as an infant. She had me there as an infant. So, so with the exception of maybe like, like, I don't know, maybe a couple months after graduation, I've never been outside of, uh, outside of a classroom. 
Um, so I suppose I should have known all along that I was going to be a professor because right, I was right. just kind of born into it. But uh, yeah, so that that's how I got into it. It, cool. it. You know, it was just the the this is what I love doing, and um, you know, I would I would do it for nearly free. Right. And, and it turns out I do. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding. So, so why, why assumption? Why Worcester? Is it just you know that was or? that? Yeah, it really was chance. I mean, at the time, so I had gotten married in. Let's see if I can get this right. 2001. Um, my wife at the time was pregnant with twin girls, and I was wrapping up my dissertation. We were living in New York City, um, and I was wrapping up my dissertation and. Uh, out of nowhere, an uh, opening uh, at Assumption, you know, came across my uh, came kind of across my line, came across my way, and um, you know, I won't take you through the ins and outs of it, but sure. I, I said to her, you know, um, this was about a month before the fall semester started in 2003, and um, I said this this could be my opportunity to land a tenure track gig. Mm. Um, you know, it's a sign of the times in the academy that someone who writes on Thucydides is not a, someone who's generally sought after in, in political science. But Assumption's political science department was really unique. I mean, they are really kind of grounded in a, a much older study of politics, and a kind of study of politics not as we've known it for the last, oh, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years uh, in the West, but grounded in uh, kind of Aristotle's approach mm -hmm. to the study of politics, a much you know older and venerable tradition, um, and and when you have a department that's animated by you know takes Aristotle as their their pole star for the proper approach to the study of politics, well then someone like me who right. writes on Thucydides, and I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with not Thucydides, familiar, but, but Thucydides was an ancient Greek. Uh, he was an Athenian, uh, uh, lived in the fifth century B.C., and we know of Thucydides because he wrote this work that we call today the history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, and it's this massive, massive work, 500 pages of Greek. And, uh, you know, it's about the, the war between Athens and Sparta, 27-year war between Athens and Sparta. Well, someone who writes their dissertation on that yeah. at a place like uh, Assumption's Political Science Department is a perfect fit for teaching international relations. Nowhere else in America, or very few other places in America, uh, <coughs> would think that's appropriate or acceptable. Uh, which I think is is sad and unfortunate, but anyway, so that's kind of why, right. kind of why assumption. And we were also at that time looking as as I say, we were living in New York City. My wife at the time was pregnant with twins, and so we were very much interested in leaving the city, uh, since we we were about to have two very small children on our hands. So it, it was uh, very nearly providential. So your children are older now. They go yeah, to school yeah, they're uh, they're juniors at Providence College. Oh, awesome! Yeah, oh, that's yeah, twin another girls. Catholic. <clears throat> another Catholic school. Yeah, Catholic. It? Yeah, they're Catholic liberal arts. Very it's cool. it's about twice the size of Assumption, right? So they've got a, a four, around four thousand undergrad, um, but a, a really uh, serious school. Right, takes liberal education very seriously, uh, very deliberate about it. Everyone's on board there. It's really impressive. I took my daughters there. Um, and they 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 weren't necessarily. I mean, they liked the school. wasn't their first choice. Now they love it. They're delighted. They're there. Um, but what what impressed me the most was when we went for uh, uh, I don't know. It was, it was you know one of these prospective student days, and you kind of sit in this massive auditorium, and they they play a video for you. And the pitch for liberal education on the video was given by the dean of this uh, business school, and it was one of the best pitches for liberal education. I've ever heard, and I've given many pitches for liberal wow. education. I think yeah. I'm pretty good at it. And this person knocked it out of the park, and I said, you know, if, if the dean of the business school 
can pitch liberal education like that, you know everyone here is on board, on board very nearly right. so. And so the whole school is is really kind of cohesive uh, educationally. And That's awesome. Yeah, uh, and they've got a great Western Civ program, and um, and yeah, so my, my daughters are very happy there. That's great. Yeah. You mentioned, so you're at BC, mm-hmm. and it seems like you weren't really anxious. I mean, maybe you were anxious about choosing what to do, because... But you took your time, mm-hmm. and the first time I met you, we met at the honors dinner. I was I a, this. I was a first year student. Yeah. Now I'm a junior, of course. And um, it's funny because my friend, Matt, my friends Matt and Ashley were sitting at that table. I end up becoming great friends with them because I study abroad with them the next year. But uh-huh. besides the point, uh, I more remember you being there, and you were asking everybody what their major was. Mm-hmm. And then you'd ask why. And when yeah. it got to me, I said, I'm majoring in finance. You said, why? I'm like, I don't know. I don't really like finance. And, you're like, <laughs> and you were just like, don't major in it. And I was like, yeah. that's probably a good idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I but it, that was a serious conversation. And I ended up thinking about what I liked. And I did, I liked philosophy. Oh, I thought that the, the classes were good. And I figured it was encouraging reading and writing skills, which yeah. seems like a lot of people may not have anymore yeah. or are losing. Yeah. And um, like, what advice do you give to students who are really anxious as a freshman who yeah. want to just get something in, lock something in, and not worry about it? And then think about how, how many do that. Yeah, so we uh, kind of perfect that you asked that because this uh, Constitution Day, which is September 17th, but September, September 18th, we're celebrating Constitution Day here at, at Assumption University. And one of uh, the guests we've invited this year is Stephen Smith from Yale. And Stephen Smith has this wonderful piece, a short piece called Majoring in Fear. And um, it's it's about how young people and and their parents right bring their kids to, when they're school shopping right, uh, they go to prospective student days or uh, and they'll, they're they're really terrified about you know what's going to happen after I graduate. Will this education be worth all of the time and money we're sinking into this? We really want an ROI, and right. and, and the parents are you know very much concerned that their kid is going to graduate and not just go back home and live in their basement and be the best educated barista at Starbucks or something like that. No offense to Starbucks baristas, we need them, um, uh, especially when I've got to wait 25 minutes at a, a Starbucks just to order a, a dark roast or something. But no, but in all seriousness, I mean, what, what parents want most of all is for their children to be happy, right? Um, if you ask them and, uh, and give them more than 30 seconds to think about it, they want their children to be happy. But kids are terrified about the next step. What, what's going to happen when I leave here and I'm on my own? Right? What, what, what the future holds is unknown. And uh, I encourage students to really lean into that. Yeah, it's unknown. In fact, I don't expect you as 18, uh, uh, 18-year-old freshman or a 22-year-old senior to know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Uh, um, you know, um, I mean, I, I knew what I wanted to do when I was uh, an undergraduate, that is study political philosophy and talk to people about it. But uh, most people aren't like that, and in fact, they're gonna—they're going to uh, graduate. They're going to pursue a particular vocation. There's going to be twists and turns, um, and it's going to be—in fact, studies show there are several twists and turns that people right. take in their in their professional lives before they kind of find where they want to be and where they're supposed to be, where they're happiest or most satisfied. That's the general run of things, right? And so what I tell students is, you know, you can't game plan the future. There's going to be all sorts of things that are coming your way. You just, you're not going to be able to foresee. Um, It's a fool's game to think that, hey, I know I'm going to be, 
you know, at 18 years old, I know 20 years out, I'm going to be here X. Well, you you don't. Nobody knows that, right? Uh, I knew I wanted to study political philosophy, but I didn't know I was going to get a job. I had all sorts of uh, plan B, plan C, plan D, right? I didn't know I was going to be at Assumption. I didn't know I was going to be at Worcester in Worcester. you know, so you, you you simply can't game plan the future. So what I tell the students right now is, look, you, you you study what you love. Study what you love. If we're doing our job here at, at Assumption in whatever field you decide, hey, I love X, whatever it is. If it's finance, great. If it's uh, philosophy, beautiful. If it's, you know, chemistry, X, what, whatever it is you love. We should, if we're doing our jobs correctly, give you the skills that you need to succeed at any vocation you find yourself in. Right. right. This is this is going to be true of about 99% of the jobs that are out there, the lines of work that are out there. So study what you love now while you can. Right. Because when you leave here and you're 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 at, at a job, right? And maybe you're in the private sector and your boss is going to be saying, you know, I need X on the on my desk by 5 p.m. today. And you say, "Well, you know, I I've, I've got these questions about these murderous regimes." In the 20th yeah. century, and, and your boss is like, I don't care, yeah. right? I, I don't want to talk about that right, right now. Right now we can choose, but when push comes to shove and you actually need financial support, you can't choose necessarily. Right. Well, your choices, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to have a, a menu of choices that are dictated largely by things other than what you might want to do. That's right. Okay. Right? Um, sometimes you'll have, I mean, we shouldn't say there's going to be no choice or no freedom, right? But not always. Right. And, and again, we don't, you know, so one of the um, one of the um, Professor Wiener, well, now President Wiener, uh, likes to remind people uh, along these lines. He'd say, you know, there are all these people who said, I'm going to be a, a Sovietologist, you know, back in the 80s. I'm going to I'm going to know and study and be an expert in Soviet politics, yeah. <laughs> you know, 1987. This oh, yeah. is great. Well, you know, two and a half years later, where'd the Soviet regime go? That's right. <laughs> Gone. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, no one was talking about terrorism on on September tenth, two thousand and one, as being our primary foreign policy challenge. You know, and then the next day, everything changes. Right, two thousand eight, housing bubble goes. Right, who was thinking about that then? Right, so the, the, these things are always going to be changing. While you're here, you got four years surrounded by professionals who dedicated their lives at knowing certain things very, very, very well. You have this glorious opportunity. And freedom galore. I know students think I'm, you know, I'm so busy. I'm so busy, and I get it. I've been there. I know what it's like being a student. You feel like you're the busiest person ever. Right. But just wait. You know, uh, wait. Right, you, yeah. you get out. You graduate. You have a job. You have kids. You have a, you have a spouse. You have a house. Things get really busy. This is a glorious time of freedom and opportunity. It's 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 luxurious. It's leisure. You know, sc- you know the Greek word for for uh, uh, leisure is skole, school. All right. Our word yeah. for school comes from the Greek word skole, which is leisure. Right. School should be leisurely in the sense that it's serious, but it's also pleasant. Right. It's right. inherently pleasant. So so you have this wonderful opportunity. Study what you love, man. Don't major in fear. Major in what you love. Why do you think we lose like we don't have we lose the view that this is so pleasurable and fun and exciting and, and we're young. So we have our our bodies, but we, but we also <laughs> are like growing into our intellectual capabilities. Yeah. Where do you think the the. Is it just like a lack of grateful um, lessons that we're taught or, or how to? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing. So it's you and I were talking about um, um, podcasts, right, recently, right. Uh, just before we got on here. That's and right. one of the one of the podcasts we were talking about had a guest on who's um, part of setting up the University of Texas at Austin, a new 
a new college, right? They're trying to, to kind of create to work against certain trends within the higher uh, within higher education in America. Anyway, he, what Jacob Howland was talking about, the, their guest, he was saying, you know, most a lot of students have lost a sense of the joy of just learning for its own sake, and I think that's partly due to the fact that it's become so utterly commodified, right? Everything is about you're doing this for some other reason. This is to get a job, right? Mm -hmm. Every Everything around us, when it comes to education, kind of pulses with one message. It's about a job. It's about a job. It's about a job. It's utterly instrumental, mm. right? And 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 it should be partly that. I mean, let's be serious, right? I mean, obviously, I want I want uh, students to come here. I want them to to acquire all sorts of wonderful. Uh, uh, pre-professional skills that will allow them to go out there and make a ton of money so they can give it back to Assumption University and endow <laughs> Professor Dobsky with a wonderful chair, right? <laughs> I'd love for that to happen. But but first and foremost, right, there should be something that is just, you know, education should be uh, for its own sake. You know, in my Quest for Justice class, I'll talk to students about this. Uh, we'll read this wonderful essay by W.E.B. Du Bois, um, uh, black author from the early 20th century, writ wrote this beautiful book called The Souls of Black Folk. There's this essay called The Talented Tenth. And in The Talented Tenth, he says, you know, that the, the true object of education is not to make men carpenters, but carpenters men. Mm -hmm. The true object of education is not to simply give you job skills that allow you to keep, you know, food on the table and a roof over your head, although it should also do that. It's to make you into a fuller, more complete human being which means initiating you into the mysteries of humanity, which introduces you to the joys and the tragedies and the triumphs of human life. Right. You know, and, and that that's a different kind of education. And one, when I say it out loud to, to young people and parents, sometimes it's, it's like I'm speaking Sanskrit or Chinese because they just haven't heard it. The parents, though, after a few minutes of this, will start to, to light up because they'll remember that right. this was a possibility once, and that right. the, the, there is a joy to learning things, whatever the subject is, right? It doesn't have to just be Shakespeare or you know political philosophy or whatever. I mean, whatever the soul takes to. Um, and students have just not heard this enough. And, and here's the other thing. I mean, it's, it, it's from elementary school all the way up through the time they graduate. They're hearing it from their peers. They're hearing it from the media. Uh, and they all too often hear it from other professors. Boggles the mind. Yeah. Education, yes, it should help you get a job and it should help you succeed at that job. But you know, the, the what's the line that Professor Guerra put up for C Tech, right? It's a, it's about not just earning a living, but having a life, or making a living, but having a life. Absolutely, that's the point. Not to just make you into carpenters, but into human beings. Mm -hmm. And on the, on a younger scale than college, the high school teachers, I'm not sure that. They, uh, the majority of them are in tune with that idea, mm -hmm. the human development, the growth mm -hmm. of the soul, I guess. And those ideas are certainly reflected in the liberal arts Catholic ideals that we have, um, like our mission, our mission statement's quite unique. Uh, and I think it seems like that reflects on having more general goals about growth, maybe mm -hmm. in 20 years, hopefully I'm not as bad with my anger. Like maybe that's a, a, <laughs> Yeah, that a would be wonderful. Versus, yeah, uh, that would be terrific. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. I mean, look, um, you know, one of the things I, I, I like to say, is, I can't remember who I stole this from, but I stole it from someone decades ago that, you know, a, a real education shouldn't just be a four-year education, but a 40-year education, right? It should be the kind of thing you carry with you for the rest of your life, right? So that, that when you're dealing with, 
you know, not not just about how to land the next big deal, but when you're dealing with the loss of a loved one, mm-hmm. or when you're dealing with you know watching a, a you know, raising children, you can you can draw on these inner resources that you've been given here at the, at, at Assumption University, right, or at a great liberal arts school, um, and so it's with that end in mind, right. I mean, so I'm a political science professor, right? So one of the things I can think of is what kind of citizen am I helping to create? Now, not, not a Republican, not a Democrat. I want to make students who leave here, they're going to be informed, responsible, serious, sober citizens of this republic. And they're going to know what that word means, republic. And they're going to know why we should care about it and why we should preserve it. Um, that's the view we have in mind. When you look at elementary school or high schools, I mean, so I guess I want to say two things here. We look at the current state of, of education in America today. A lot of these schools are driven by concerns with uh, uh, state accreditation agencies or regional accreditation agencies. Um, and then so they're designing curriculum with a view to these accreditation agencies. Yeah, they don't want to lose their accreditation. Right. They need to keep their, their status as a, you know, publicly acceptable high school, whatever. That's, that's going to have a, you know, get, give a degree that the state recognizes. But that accreditation agency doesn't have these things, the assumptions, you know, mission about about creating thoughtful citizens who are devoted to the common good and the search of truth in the company of friends. That's not what they're concerned with. Sure. Right. And so what so so you get this kind of what I would call a deforming influence by a lot of these accreditation agencies. It's the business, right? The accreditation agency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, now, so that's the one point I want to say. The other thing is, you're st- as a result of this, you're starting to see, uh, I think, a long overdue reaction by, um, you've, seen, you've seen a growth in the last 20 years of homeschooling. Um, you're now seeing the rise of uh, what they call uh, classical education, schools dedicated to classical education, which are starting to pop up, which are trying to take back, right, uh, uh, classical education for their kids, education rightly understood for uh, the, for their children and, and their future citizens. And I mean, I think that's a very heartening development. Mm. Yeah. We talked about, we touched a little bit on um, some ideas that have been lost on some students possibly, uh, like reflecting on the liberal arts ideas we just talked about. <clears throat> Another thing I'm interested in, I hear, so I've never taken your class and I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I did so I could speak more intelligently about your class. But I, I kind of, I'm kind of happy I didn't because I've gotten, I've talked to people who have, mm-hmm. and the, many, many different, reviews, many different reviews. No, no, no but it, it's very many interesting to me. It's yeah. very interesting to me because it seems like the, and I'm not saying you're some impossibly challenging professor, but it seems like the more challenging the professor, more often than not, uh, correlates with more knowledge that you have, the more potential that you can uh, gain knowledge in that class, in yeah. those periods of uh, class throughout the semester. Now, on the other hand, I think some students can be uh, overwhelmed by like mm-hmm. passion or excitement. Yeah. How is how do you navigate that dilemma you have? I'm yeah, sure that, you're passionate. Oh boy, that's a tough one, right? Um, because you know, I get naturally excited about this stuff. It, it's not a show for me. I'm not I'm not trying to whip the kids up into a frenzy. I love talking about this stuff, right? I mean, I I I you know one of the one of the things I discovered when I was an undergraduate. Um, when I was, you know, doing uh, review sessions with with my peers in the in, in the classes we were in, and I'd run review sessions, and I loved it, man. I loved it. I loved discussing this stuff and trying to find new and different ways to like 
convey a point to my peers. Um, and so I, I'm just naturally excited about this. But you're right, it, it scares some students. They're, they're overwhelmed by this kind of wave of intensity that's coming right. at them, right? And I'm always worried. I mean, so one of the problems with the, the excessive enthusiasm or with my enthusiasm is, is it either scares students or it becomes a sideshow for them where it's like, you know, watch the spaz in front of the room, and they're just like, wonder what he's going to do next. Is he going to throw a desk? Is he going to bang on the desk? Is he, what, what is he going to do? Instead of listening to what I'm actually saying, right? right. So there is this way in which it becomes counterproductive. Um, and then, of course, then the other thing is, you know, it scares students. The fact of the matter is, I love what I do, but I also love the students, and I want what's best for them, right? I want them to grow and that requires that I make demands of them, right? Because if we just say, do what you want, they're not going to grow. You know, just just leave it to yourself. Figure out your own way. It's not going to happen. And believe it or not, I think deep down, most students want to have a lot asked of them. Mm-hmm. They they do. I mean, they're afraid. I think some students naturally, I mean, I think we all are at some point afraid of, of failing, right, or not being able to meet the demands. But deep down, I think we want our professors to ask more of us because we want them to think we're capable of doing it. Right. And mm. and I think they're capable of doing it. And I want them when they when they're done after four years here and they walk across that dais on their on their graduation day and they get that sheepskin. I want that to be worth something. Right. You know, and if they take on something. more challenges, it'll be worth something. For Absolutely. Sure. For Absolutely. Sure. Look, I mean, so I'm, I'm going to pump political science a little bit here. But, you know, I, I, I know a lot of our majors will sometimes. You know, they love the major, and that's one of the things I, I do like at the end of the year, and, and we have our political science banquet, and we're talking to our seniors. I mean, they really love the major. They love their experience in it. But I think part of it's because it's been like boot camp, you know, and you, mm. you've made it through boot camp, and you made it through together, and there's a kind of esprit de corps that, that's there. Um, but with that comes a lot of suffering, right? Uh, uh, Xenophon Socrates says that, that true education requires suffering. Right. I think that's true. And so right. I'm here to give true education. That means suffering. suffering. <laughs> and, and they'll sometimes lament, yeah. you know, that 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 education comes at the expense of a, of a higher GPA. And they'll look around and they'll say, well, you know, I know I see other people and they've got they've got these really nice GPAs. They didn't have to work as hard mm. as I did for mm. this particular GPA. And I'll say, well, you know, would you would you really want to change places with them? And then the answer is no. They wouldn't. They they would rather have what they have and learned what they learned. Right. But appreciation in that challenge, it seems like, okay, so those political science students who graduated, they understood it because yeah. they took it on and yeah. they embraced the challenge and then they moved forward. But there's so many students. I'm guessing there's more students now, my generation, than there were in your generation who are just completely against challenge and they think that the, the challenge is like a disservice to them, that you being challenging is actually you maybe being uh, selfish or like something like that. Or arrogant or or elitist or somehow I'm not a good teacher because I'm not giving them enough aid or support to allow them to succeed. Um, And the fact of the matter is, you know, I mean, uh, look, uh, I'll let other people be the judge of my ability as a professor. And certainly, you know, there are over the generations, students are going to change because things change, people change, society changes. Um... Look, I'll just go back to the fact that uh, I really do love my students, and yeah. and sometimes that love is tough love. Because I know if if they can handle my classes, so I'll I'll put it this way, uh, I don't want to make too too grandiose. I was about to make a really grandiose claim for myself. I won't do that. I'll just tell this one story. <laughs> after after my first first couple years here, uh, I had a, a couple of young men who had taken a lot of classes with me, and um, 
they had gone to law school, different law schools, but they were buddies. They went to law school, and and after their first semester in law school, and the first year of law school is notoriously very difficult, right? Right. Um, they they contacted me and said, you know, your exams were harder than these. Now, someone might say, well, that's boy, you you might want to dial it back, <laughs> Professor Dobsky. A little bit, but little but bit. but the fact of the matter is, they left Assumption at that time. It was Assumption College. They left Assumption College prepared to succeed in law school. That means we did our job. For sure. You know, and now these men are out there making, you know, this is I say was like about 20, almost 20 years ago, they're making scads of money. I mean, For please, sure, you have right. a lot more money than yours truly. Um, <laughs> they, they were, they were, time. they were ready, they were ready to succeed. Be, you know, they didn't like the challenges at the time. I'm sure they had all sorts of choice words to describe me to others. Um, but in the end, and it wasn't just me, it was, it was everyone at the school, uh, everyone in the department. Um, they were, they were as a result of this education prepared to succeed. But look, you know, this, these four years here are, a tra- you know, there's a lot of transformation that grow, goes on, right? Um, you know, sometimes they'll tell students true education's like going through puberty, right? Mm. And it's awkward and weird and uncomfortable and exhilarating, at times exhilarating. And at the end of it, you're not the same person as when you began. You know, whatever, whenever you're a 12, 13, 14-year-old, at 19 or 20, you're a qualitatively different human being, right? And that's what true education should be. We should, if you're, if you're fully educated or getting fully, fully educated, you're going to be a different human being. But that growth can be painful. With growth comes some uncomfortable, well, uh, discomfort. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it means to grow up and be an adult. Hmm. Yeah. And it's good that, that these challenges, they're like manufactured on a smaller scale. Yeah. And then we're able to, when you lose a loved one, that challenge is not to say it's easy in any sense, but it, at least it gets a little, you might be able to deal with it better because That's you right. face just challenges. Yeah, I mean, these are pretty, I mean, I know at the time when you're in, in college, and I don't mean to downplay the seriousness with which students have to, to deal with a lot of, they've got a lot going on while they're here. It's not just classes, they've got jobs, personal mm-hmm. lives, all sorts of things are going on at the same time. Um, but it's much lower stakes, right, than when, when after you graduate um, and you become hopefully a, a fully autonomous, self-governing human being who's now responsible for others, perhaps. You have a right. family um, or others you're taking care of, maybe it's parents or siblings. Um, yeah, the stakes are raised there, and then it becomes much more serious. You need an opportunity here where the stakes are much lower, where you can learn, you can fail, you can fall down, and you can get back up, right? right? And it, and you, you know, it's okay. We're here to support you, right? You, if you fail at a particular assignment or a particular class, so, you know, assumption, that's one of the things I love about assumption is we're here to support the students, right? We right. want them to succeed. It may seem adversarial, but at the, 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 the bottom of it is we want you to succeed. We're here to help you succeed, you know? Right. But that takes a kind of, it takes a kind of courage on the part of the student to be open to that. It means being open to criticism. It means being open to possi- you know, the possibility of failure, recognizing that possibility and, and going through it, facing it anyway. Um, it means being open to saying, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not cut out for this, mm. uh, this particular study. Maybe it's another study I'm cut out for. Um, but it, it requires being open to your own limits. Right. Uh, or maybe I'm not trying as hard as I. Maybe I'm not trying as hard. Maybe yeah. I need to ask more of myself. Right. That's what I found as a as a first year yeah. freshman. I was, I just realized that I was probably giving twenty percent in high school. Twenty percent. I thought I was giving a hundred. <laughs> so now yeah. I think I'm giving like a, a 
more a, a larger percentage, but I'm still uh, realizing that there's there's limits there, but also that I do have potential that I should care about and well, and, invest and, in. And absolutely, I mean, think about it. Okay, so when you're in high school, you got your parents there, and they're kind of always there. They help you get up on time, yep, maybe. Yep. They're not going to let you sleep in and miss school. No, no. They're going to be, hey, how's the, how are your studies going? Did you get your work in? All of these things, right? They're there, and you come to here, come to college, and you don't have that oversight. And it's very liberating. It's very freeing. It's very wonderful. And 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 then, but it can be also kind of terrifying because you're like, uh, I'm re- I'm now responsible for myself. But once you realize you can start doing it on your own, oh my god, right? How liberating and how empowering is that? I mean, when mm. you're a kid, all you want to do is be able to take care of yourself, not always having to depend on others. You just can't wait right. to be to be big. Yeah. And then you get here and you discover I actually can do this. I can be autonomous. And when I do that, I can ask of myself a lot more, right? I I can say, you know what? I'm going to get up and I'm going to put in that extra time to study or I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to get that extra job or whatever it is. And you say, I I can do this. How unbelievably exhilarating is that to discover you can own yourself and be a truly free human being? That's, that's right. I, t- I, I all the time I'm telling students, what is a liberal education, right? Liberal is, is at root. It's a root is a Latin word, liber, and that's a root of our liberty. It's about freedom and education in and towards freedom. How wonderful is it to discover you're capable of being a genuinely free right. human being? Right. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. But but it, it's not easy. And you can stack things, too. It's yeah. like you learn how to do one thing one year. You continue to do that, like going to the gym, for example. If you add going to the gym to your school week routine, mm-hmm. you will be undoubtedly happier. Oh yeah, you'll think yeah. you accomplish more. You will accomplish a- more. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, my my I mentioned my daughters are at, at uh, junior year in Providence now, and I was speaking to uh, one of them the other day, and she said, you know, I, first week of class, she said, these classes look a lot harder than my sophomore year. Yeah. I was like, well, that's right, junior senior year, it's it's stepping up, and. Um, and I, I think she's, you know, she's um, she's nervous, but it's a healthy kind of nervousness, Good. right? Um, so she she's seeing the challenge in front of her. She recognizes it's a challenge, and she's hoping she's up for it. And, and I mean, I think that's good. That's that's you you stack these things, right, right? right? You don't go in as a junior; you go in as a freshman, that's and you right. learn these skills, and then you build on that. You become a sophomore. You build on those skills, and then we step it up. That's great. Yeah. That's that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I uh, I have some other questions I thought about. As far as like contemporary okay. ideas, I um, I've never vote. I haven't voted in a presidential election yet. So the first okay. one I'm going to vote in is next year. Um, so I was watching the presidential debates, or I watched the first presidential debate. Um, my first question about like voting and being a young individual in a community: Why should I vote? I think a lot of people. Um, explain to me that, that my vote doesn't matter. Some do. Some some say it does. But yeah. my parents tell me to vote every time I can. Uh, but like, does my vote really matter? Is voting the best way to participate in a? Well, it's it's a great way to participate. It shouldn't be the only way that we participate. And that okay. that I think is a real problem. Is that we tend to think of uh, democratic participation simply in terms of elections. Uh, elections are very important, but they're. I mean, if that's all it is to being a free person, then what we we uh, come out of our holes every four years to vote for a president and yeah. go back, <laughs> go back, go back to our caves. Cave, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, so it should be much more than that. But on the issue of voting, I love voting. I love it. Um, I get so excited to do it. And I would yeah. always take my daughters with me so so they could see, how one, how excited I got yeah, about it. Awesome. They could see how important, every, they'd see the long lines, everyone's 
waiting, yeah. right? And then we'd get into the booth and I'd show them what the, you know, what the ballot looks like. And then I'd point out, okay, we're going to vote for this candidate or that candidate, whatever. And nice. they've, they'd heard me talking about it enough because, for sure, the, for sure. you know, so they kind of knew going into it. But I love voting. And, um, you know, uh, okay, so so we have um, a system for when it comes to national presidential elections it's it's determined by the electoral college sure. and so a lot of people will say you know okay um, in, in most states in 48 of the 50 states it's winner take all so what are the two that are not winner take all uh, 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 geez uh, I want to say Maine so they split electoral votes well so if you if you get four electoral votes it's either Maine or New Hampshire and then and then I think there's a western state that does it as well okay one of the Dakotas. I should know this, and it's just it's it's like on my fingertips. Okay. Um, but they, you say you say you have four electoral votes in the two districts, right? Um, if a Democrat wins one district okay. and a Republican wins the other district, they each get one electoral vote from that. But if you put it all together, and let's say the Democrat wins based on the state population as a yep. whole, then they get the remaining two. Okay. That's how they split. Oh, okay. It. Okay. Um, now there's a so so we have this electoral college system where it's you know each state is winner take all and of course the the representative of the, the electoral votes are based on the number of representatives from each state so the number of house members right. and senators um, in Massachusetts if you're a Republican uh, I mean I can't remember the last time Massachusetts cast its electoral ballots uh, for a Republican right. uh, presidential uh, nominee or candidate. That means if you're a Republican in Massachusetts, you might think, I'm just throwing my vote away. It doesn't count here, Yep. right? Um, same thing if you're, say, a Democrat in a longstanding red state, whether it's Florida or Oklahoma mm -hmm. or, or Texas or something like that. You might say, well, it doesn't matter here because the state's going to go red anyway. Now, I'm a big believer in the Electoral College. I think we should keep it. There are movements afoot to get around the Electoral College. We can talk about that if you want. But... Um, I'm a big, I, I cast votes here, and I, I haven't voted Democratic in a long time. I'm a registered independent, but I haven't voted Democratic in a long time. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm voting Republican. Uh, sure. But I still vote. Why is that? Because my vote does count. My vote does count. It just doesn't count for the winner, right? My vote counts for mm -hmm. a losing candidate. Right. Now, that's still important because it means I want people out there to know my vote here is no, 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 no. I know this state's going to go Democratic. I don't give you my mandate, mm. right? If I'm silent about this, how do they know I'm out there saying I don't approve of this? They don't know that. The only way they know other people are out there that say we don't approve this. We know you're going to have it anyway, right? You guys got the numbers. Is if they speak up and say we know you got the numbers, but we're still going to be a loud minority here. Right, We're right. going to make our voices known. I love casting votes of dissent, right? Yeah. Because I say, okay, not me. Yeah, I know cool, you're going to cool. go this way, but not Fire. me. Okay. So the vote does count. It just counts for a, a non-winning candidate. Mm -hmm. So it would be no different than, you know, um, if you have, uh, imagine you have a just another state where, you know, uh, a very popular candidate is running for governor. And you don't want to support that governor. There, it's very you know, governor's very popular. He or she's very popular with most of the state. I don't like this governor. I'm still. Does my vote still count? Sure. Right. I'm just voting against that governor. Right, right, right. Right. And, and so it's important to know. And by the way, so if you're a if you're 
um, if you're a Republican in Massachusetts or a Democrat in Oklahoma or Texas or Florida, it's important to those parties, nationally speaking, that they know you're there. Right. Because if they know you're there, they may next time around invest more resources into growing right. you know, the, the non-majoritarian party. Right. So if you think your vote doesn't count, then you also think your like voice in the community doesn't Absolutely. count. That's not, that's Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So my voice my voice my voice let me try that again in English. My <laughs> voice and vote does count. It just means, you know, I have a right to vote. I don't, I don't have a right to win. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I, I tell people when they're, oh, you know, my vote doesn't. No, you, you, your vote does count. You just don't have a right to win. You have a right to, to a vote, but not a right to there victory. You go. Yeah, right. Okay. And victory, you got to work for. That's how it should be. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. What, well, what's like the other option? So there's the electoral college system that we have. What? You're saying that there's some controversy about a different system? Yeah, is there's there a, so, that... so there, a lot of people think we, in terms of our presidential election, we should run it by um, the, the popular vote, the national popular vote, right? Okay. So whoever gets the most votes, nationally speaking, mm. uh, just in terms of the popular vote, right, the people going out casting ballots, uh, should win the presidency. And there's a certain sense of that. It seems quintessentially democratic. It's not the way our system was set up. That's right. Right. Um, our system was set up so that the states would be the primary uh, organizing forms for expressing right. presidential preference. Okay. But the bigger the state, the more power they have. Yes, because the the, the, the more yeah, the larger the population you have, uh, right. the more uh, representatives you're going to have yep. in the, the, from the House of Representatives. Um, but they, they don't base the electoral count simply on the House of Representatives. Every state has two senators. Yep. And that actually changes quite a bit, right? Because when you add the senators into the mix, it, it narrows the gap between smaller states like, say, a New Hampshire or a Rhode Island and larger states like California and Texas. Now, it doesn't even it out, but right. it narrows the gap. Okay, even though everyone gets two, everyone gets two. Everyone gets two, but it changes the proportion. Okay. uh, Right? It changes the proportion. So if you were to say, you know, based on popular uh, vote alone, um, uh, one state gets six votes and another state gets two votes, you would say that the difference, it's one third, right? The smaller vote has one third of the voice of the larger state. Now add two senators to each. What does it become? Eight to four. Mm. Well, now... We have one half yeah, okay. the voice of the larger. We're, we're still a smaller voice, right, marginal, yeah. but the proportion has changed for sure in our favor, in the smaller state's favor. Okay, right? Yeah, yeah. We're making up more ground there just by adding two to everybody. So the the popular vote. Yeah. Where's the? Why would you not? think that's a good well uh, there are many many reasons and we could do a, a whole hour podcast that, on yeah, that yeah. alone um, but to, to break it down I'd say the first thing is if you do a, something like a popular vote uh, then so w- w- I wish I I wish I had brought maps here if we were going to discuss this <laughs> oh, um, no it's okay because the the the, much time. the the you know Trump uh, first Trump election beats Hillary Clinton yep um, as well, Hillary got more popular, more right. more votes the popular right, yeah. than the Trump did, uh, and there was something like I don't know several thousand counties right mm-hmm. out there. And if you just break it down in counties, she won something like five hundred counties. That means Trump won, yeah, several thousand counties. Oh, yeah, and she yeah. won five hundred. Yeah. Now she won the five hundred most Biggest populous. Ones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Counties. 
Okay. And where would that be? Well, it would be L.A., it would be Miami, it would be New York, it would be mm -hmm. Chicago, it would be Detroit, all very important cities. But that's a, a fraction of America. Right. And the interests of the big cities are not the same as the interests of the rest of the country. Mm. So if you eliminate the Electoral College, you could just say, look, uh, all I need to do is win, you know, L.A. County, New York, right. you know, Miami, D.C., uh, 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 Dallas, Fort Worth, stuff like that. That's it. Definitely not what we want, too. And I, I don't have to bother going to <laughs> Iowa or Indiana or New Hampshire. I don't to hell with those places. I can ignore them because I just need the population center. Right. OK. Yeah. The rest of America Fair. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Ah, The Electoral College means everyone's got to go to everywhere because all of them do matter. Yeah. And, that, and that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. right. Uh, we, we could go back. There's another problem in, in all of this. And that is we might remember the Bush Gore election. Right. When it came down to counting votes in a particular county. And why were we trying to count votes in a particular Floridian county? Came down to one county? Came down to a couple counties in couple, Florida. Okay, yeah. Why? Because Florida had all of these electoral votes that were in the balance. And whoever won Florida would, would tip the scales right. one way or the other. Right. And so they were counting individual ballots in Broward County. Right? It's crunch time. Now, if you have a national election and you eliminate electoral votes and you have a very, very close election, in terms of the popular vote, let's yep. say within 1%, 2% of the vote, sure. well, there could be all sorts of electoral irregularities throughout the country that could swing that percentage one way or the other. Mm. So are you tell me we're going we're gonna to dig through 100 million votes? To then figure out the... To figure out the winner? Right, yeah. Can't, you just, it's not... It would not be. It would, we work, would, right? we, it would take years to unpack. Okay. And to say, no, and it would take years, not simply because you have to go back and and recount each vote to make sure it was counted correctly, because then the lawsuits start, mm. right? And the lawsuits, and it's going to take money. Yeah. So the, I mean, we're just. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Okay. Yeah. Right. So the electoral college system makes it possible to say, look, the only way uh, this person has a chance of winning is if they win that particular state. And if it's close in that state, then maybe we have a recount. And we got to do a recount. So let's look at the counties where it's close. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. okay. So now we're just looking at a few counties instead of a nation of okay, 350 okay. million people. There we go. Yeah? Okay. So, so I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Electoral College for many, many, many reasons. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. It's good to know because it always was confusing to me as a young adult. makes a little more sense now, but it's still confusing. Yeah. Um, when I was watching the presidential debate, there's kind of a broad range of different individuals there, the Republican debate. And one person who kind of caught my ear, but I don't really know how to think about him or, or what he was saying, but he said, like one idea he said was, since I'm the only one who's not bought and paid for, I can say this. And then he said something. And then it made me, people got very upset at him. It was Vivek, the, the uh, Rami Swanee, is, uh -huh. is it? Okay, yeah. Um, it interests me, but like, how do I navigate these kind of political controversy controversies when I'm trying to get at some moderate view? Because that seems like that's where the truth is. But um, I mean, he, he seemed like he didn't think that uh, that he sh we should pull troops out of Ukraine. And I think like, okay, well, yeah, we did spend a lot of money, but then isn't there like, shouldn't we be helping a country that needs help? Right. So there's these different. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so the Ukraine, I mean, the, the uh, so, you know, we go from one big topic to another. Right, well, we can focus on the first one. It, he said that, to be fair, he said that in response to the um, effects of the environment, the yeah. environmental, uh, the environmentalist claim. Uh, uh, okay, so I, I, I'm 
you know, I'm I'll I'll say how old I am. I'm 50 years old now, and I've I've been at this for a while, and I don't I don't claim to have any particularly keen insight on the nature of things, just from the experience of. I don't know how old you are, but I'll just say I'm 30-plus years older than you. And I do not envy uh, young voters today, young people today who are just starting to think about voting for major national elections because it seems so incredibly convoluted. And and by that I mean um, you don't know any of these these candidates personally, right? There are these vastly, you know, there's this vast distance between us and them. Um, not just in terms of miles, but in terms of kinds of experiences they have, wealth they have, you know, you name it. There's just this world of difference between between us and them. And so one of the cheap ways we get to know them is through the news. Uh, when I was growing up, there were a couple major national newspapers, some major national uh, uh, journals, right? Then you would have your local state newspapers, something like that, big city newspapers, something like that. Um, and that was a way that would really allow you to kind of distill discussion, right? It became possible to have discussion. Today, with social media and the print media basically dead, um, it's very hard to talk to people across uh, or outside of your own particular ideas. It's even harder to get an accurate sense as to, can you know, so so there's so I guess there's two things I want to focus on here, although we could talk about more than two things. One is the fragmentation of the media that's happened under the, the onset of digital news and social media. And the other one is the what we've seen over the last couple of years, certainly since 2020, uh, but it goes, goes farther or, or older than that, is the extent to which the, the media has shown themselves to be not entirely trustworthy in as being saying, you know, uh, the objective purveyors of the news, right? Elon and, Musk showed that quite evidently. Yeah, which well, is Elon Musk, and I would say, you know, um, whatever you think about Elon Musk, you want to throw him aside, find Matt Taibbi. Now, Matt Taibbi and I, Matt Taibbi is a, a journalist who, is, who now writes for Substack. He used to write for Rolling Stone. Um, and uh, and he write, he's written for a number of different outlets. He's a brilliant journalist. He and I do not agree politically, but he is one of the most honest, fearless journalists out there. And he was one of those uh, when Musk took over Twitter, and Musk said, "All right, everyone, come in and take a look at at what right. you know behind the curtain." Right, what was going on? Taibbi um, was one of the journalists to really lay bare what was going on there. And it's, you know, it's not just, you know, so you see government interference, but it's, it's on both sides of the aisle, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I think in, in because the, the, the Democrats have been recently in power, we saw so more of that with right, them. Okay, but okay. take your pick, right? I mean, it's not okay. a partisan uh, issue here. Everyone's got their hands dirty here. And so you see certain outlets simply being the kind of... Um, uh, the, the, the you know organ grinder for a, a, a particular party, right? The, the voice box for a particular party. And so they're like, well, who can I trust, right? And then what happens is you've got this fragmentation on social media, the digital news. It's very easy to just uh, get into an echo chamber of your own. You just, you know, especially the way social, like something like Twitter and yeah, the algorithms, right. yeah, so Twitter and social, I'm sorry, Facebook work. Um, they're just going to keep feeding you what they think you're interested in based on what you've been clicking on. So to come back to the question you asked, how, what would you say to young people trying to figure out yeah. 
he says he's not bought and paid for. Maybe. I don't know. Right. I don't know, Vivek. You know, right, right, right. maybe he's bought and paid for. I don't know. Um, so I really, really feel for young people today trying to figure this out. What I do, and it's not foolproof by any means, but I try and read as much as I can across the spectrum. Okay? So so one of the things I like to do, and this is this, uh, this going to be another plug for political science, but also for assumption, there's a website out there called realclearpolitics.com. And uh, it's published by a, a former, by a, well, by an Assumption alum who was a political science major. His name is David DeRozier. And he just he just makes this available, realclearpolitics.com. And it, they don't, they're not pushing any particular view. They're simply a clearinghouse for the best that's been published on any given day. Okay. From the right, the left, the crazy, wingnut, whatever. It's all there. It's mm. all there. And it's, by the I tell my students all the time to use real clear during election cycles because they have links to the best uh, surveys and polls out there. So you want to follow an election, they're the place to go th- because they have everything. Because they're not Republican, they're not Democrat, they're not Libertarian, they're not anything. They're just, they literally will just post everything that's been published. And I'll go and read, I'll know, okay, well, this was a conservative voice. This is a liberal voice. This is a libertarian voice. This is a, you know, sure. moderate voice. This, you know, this one might be a little out there, but what the hell? Mm-hmm. And I, I try and read it all, you know, as much as I can, as much as it's, as I can. I, I try to read uh, every side as much as possible and then make an informed decision, knowing full well that I'm never going to have 100% perfect objective clarity on any right. given issue. But that's the move. You're getting from both. You're getting information from both sides. You mentioned the algorithms that are in place on social media. Like, it's it's really bad because not only are those views being reinforced because of the Instagram algorithms, for yeah. example, but they're they're kind of uneducated views. Oh yeah. Like they're not even educated on their own side that they're kind of identifying with or scrolling through. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so you know, I I've got you know I've got my guilty pleasures that uh, there are columnists out there I like reading. Taibbi is one. I mean, uh, even though he and I don't agree politically, I I love the work he's doing. But I've got my guilty pleasures. But I always have to kind of try and be honest with myself. I need to go read this. I need to go read from this uh, this particular resource because I know they're going to give me something I don't agree with. But I need to think about it like that. And it's hard work. I mean, you know, if anyone's listening to this, they go, well, that's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, you know, right. making responsible decisions in one of the most powerful countries in the history of the world is a lot of work. It it's a big be. responsibility. Yeah, you wouldn't want be. to be easy. I exactly. Guess, right? yeah. So, so yeah, you know, that's, you know, I, I, so I wish I had a panacea for you or, a, you know, something that was simpler, but really it, it's just, you got to do a lot of work. Be, be, you know, um, what is it kind of, you have to kind of have a respectful disrespect for everything, you know, you mm. I'm going to take you seriously, but I'm not simply going to believe you. Nice skepticism. And, yeah, healthy okay, skeptic. Yeah. That's a better sure. way to put it, healthy skepticism. Good. Um, without being cynical, you know, that's the other thing I fear is that students uh, may very quickly give in to, to cynicism. And that's that's not good because if that if you are genuinely cynical, what is cynicism? Well, to simply say it's all, you know, it's all a game. It's all uh, who you know. It's all about it's all rigged. Mm doesn't matter what I say. It's not about just, it's all about power, it's all about money. Yeah, uh, I mean, sometimes it's about power and money certainly has a role in these things and sometimes it very it ought to. Um, but I've studied politics as a, as a professor and just as a interested citizen long enough to know 
that most of the people involved in the world of politics are not primarily motivated by a desire for power or by a desire for money, but by a love of the common good. Even people I don't like. You know, there's a there's a candidate out there who's very popular with certain people um, who is not president, uh, uh, just so I'm not, you know, people don't think I'm talking about Trump, <laughs> but he was very popular. Um, he was never a president? He was never a president. Okay. He ran for president. And um, I don't agree with any of his policies. I think they're horribly misguided, but I think he genuinely believes them. And he genuinely believes that they would help our country. You know, I have I have a great deal of respect for that. Um, and I think it's true of a lot of the people involved, maybe not always at the highest level right. or the most visible, excuse me, the most visible level. But but most people involved in politics get involved because they love our country and they want to see it uh, thrive. And so I, I would encourage young people not just be like, oh, to heck with it. It's all rigged. There's nothing I can do. It's right. all mo- about money and interest. It's all about the elite. Uh, we can't change anything. No, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, you can change it. It's not all about power or money. Uh, justice does matter. Um, rights do matter. Freedom does matter. Equality does matter. But we have to make sure it matters to our politicians precisely right. to the extent that we get involved uh, in, in political life, actively get involved in political life. Um, because otherwise, then we'll just we'll just be surrendering our voices to them, and right. we'll become pawns in their game. I'm not sure if this is the individual you were referencing, but Robert Robert F. Kennedy, I noticed him on the left side, and he, like, he really s- stuck out to me because he seemed to have views that he believed in, mm-hmm. and like, he spoke about the truth, which you don't really, mm-hmm. which for some reason, you don't hear presidents say, like reference, <laughs> or that there's like these ideas that we can pursue that yeah. we don't, yeah. and. Um, it seems like the Democratic Party kind of just shoot him away a little bit. I know that some people think he's kind of absurd, but um, I well, don't know. well, you know, I mean, so uh, the last what the the first Trump election in twenty sixteen, boy, it's years go by quickly. Yeah, right. Um, you know, it, it looked like for a while it was going to be Trump versus Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. um, and you know. Had the Democratic primaries not been set up the way they were, it's quite possible that Sanders would have been the the nominee and, then um, and the not, president, not possibly, right? Well, yeah, and 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 maybe president. I yeah. mean, because there were there were and the, one of the fascinating things was there were a lot of people who liked Sanders, um, who ended up voting for Trump, and why they liked Sanders was not because he was a Democrat, but because he was anti-establishment. Right. Uh, because he was he, they, people believed him when he said, you know, I believe X, Y and Z. They're like, he's authentic. This mm. guy believes what he says. He's not lying to us. He's not telling us what we think, uh, what he thinks we want to hear. Um, he believes in these principles and 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 he's going to break up the system and he's going to really, you know, uh, tend to the needs of the common man in a way that both parties have just kind of forgotten about. Um, and so when he didn't get the nomination, they were like, well, Trump's just the flip side of that coin, you know. Mm-hmm. He also says things he believes, and he also comes across as someone who's going to uh, address the needs of, a, of an America that's been forgotten by mm-hmm. the two major political parties. So it wasn't entirely. I mean, at first when I when I first heard about this phenomenon of Bernie Bros voting for Trump, I was like, "What?" Yeah. Uh, but you know, after a moment's reflection, I mean, they were both outsider candidates. Both uh, were held to be authentic, you know. Um, I mean, one say what you want about Trump. He doesn't 
Sugar coat. need to lie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> He'll tell you what right. he's thinking. He'll tweet yeah. it, whether you want to hear it or not, whether you should say it or not. Uh, he says it. And, and you know, people are like, well, thank God we're finally getting straight talk from somebody. Right. And that um, might influence someone to kind of make up uh, make up for some of the negative things that people think about Trump, but still be authentic or still say what they think. Yeah. So it could it could end up being a, certainly a good thing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, look, uh, oh, so you know, people say you're a political scientist, so you should know, you know, what's going to happen in a particular uh, election. Uh, election or you know, current events. Just look, I, I mean, my my track record, if I'm 500, I would be lucky. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it's very, very hard to predict these things. But I wouldn't count out uh, RFK uh, Jr. at all. I would not count him out. Um, you know, I know he's he would be running against an incumbent president, but you know, look, crazier things have happened. Yeah, we've seen it. Right. And um, you know, I mean, I know, I know, um, I know conservative-minded people who really like RFK. Oh, for sure. And uh, and so I would not be surprised. You know, you um, listen. Sorry, it's, it's in the realm. I would say this. I, I a little surprised, maybe, but it's not outside of the realm of a possibility and, and enough, we shouldn't yeah. discount it at all. And if, if there are people out there who like RFK, they shouldn't think, oh, well, he's my vote doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. I won't support him. Right. No, 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 no. You cast your vote of dissent. Express that vote of dissent. Have you seen, I'm sure you're familiar with Joe Rogan. Yeah. Have you seen any of his podcasts, uh, particularly the one with RFK? I, I've seen clips from that that episode, okay. but I haven't watched the, the whole uh, They talk about astonishing things. Mm-hmm. I mean, RFK... In the first about 35 to 40 minutes, breaks down the history of vaccines, starting uh-huh. all the way back to 1920, and that there's a lot of. I'm not going to use the word corruption because it's hard to say if that's what it was or that's what the intent was. But there's a lot of things that happened about the, that science that we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, there were these. They were trying to figure out where the mercury in the vaccines were going, and the mercury from the. Uh, so how they did it? They did a controlled study with. Um, children and they had they gave them uh fish that had mercury in it i think tuna that's what it was and they tested their blood after a week and after a month and uh all of the mercury was secreted like gone from their system from their blood so they figured that these are safe vaccines and that's what was established a long time ago uh but what what a scientist did was did that same study but with monkeys or with chimpanzees and what you can't do with children with but what you can do with chimpanzees is sacrifice them Mm -hmm. And he found that the mercury was found in their brain, so because he knew it went somewhere, yeah. and and then that there was a whole interesting uh, kind of controversy that arose in 1980s, the late or I'm not sure when, but in the 1980s, where um, these pharmaceutical companies went to the Reagan administration and basically said, like, we're going to lose all of our money because we're getting sued for the vaccines, and the vaccines are beneficial, but they're also slightly dangerous, like they're inherently dangerous because yeah. they're vaccines. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know any of that. Uh, it still doesn't, it didn't like drastically change my view on vaccines. I wasn't planning on getting another vaccine before I watched it. And I'm still not going to now after watching it. But I think it was, just, it's just helpful to understand, yeah. especially something you're putting in your body. Well, no, that's right. So, so America, uh, maybe just generally people in the West have this, um, this ability. Well, how do I, how do I want to put it? They fetishize expertise, right? If you're an expert in something, then we should just simply defer to you, as if somehow all political life could be reducible to run, to being run by by the experts, right? 
So uh, when it comes to economics, let's get our Nobel Prize winning economists in there. They'll run the economy and they'll get it right. When it comes to making health policy, let's get our health experts in there and they'll make it right. You know, and when a uh, uh, pandemic pops up, we got to trust the science, mm -hmm. right? We got to trust, we hear this all, trust the science, which is a very strange thing to say. You got to trust the science. Well, yeah. science precisely takes trust, tries to say, Let's take it out of the equation here. Okay. Don't trust me. I'll show you. Yeah, I'll that's demonstrate right. that's it to you. There's no trust yeah, needed yeah. here, right? I'll do, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this bit about trust of science has always been very kind of very, you know, ironic, uh, unintentionally ironic. But but the thing is, anyone who knows anything about how science works is you, you start off with a hypothesis and you see if it holds up. You do some experiments, see if it holds up. And a lot of times it doesn't. You go back, you change your hypothesis, play with things a bit. You know, I'm being very crude here and simplistic, uh -huh. right? But but we build scientific knowledge over trial and error. And it takes a long time to do this, mm. right? So so I was not at all surprised when, you know, after the, the pandemic broke out and the, the scientific community starts saying X on one thing and then later starts massaging it, changing it, modifying it. That was perfectly understandable, perfectly predictable. Right. What bothered me from the beginning is the way people said, just trust the science. No, 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 no. Right, no, with no. certainty. Yeah. yeah. Well, the science is going to change. We should mm -hmm. take this with a, a grain of salt. Okay, this is the first start. Maybe it's right. But we don't know, right? Like you, you said, you know, they, they, they discovered... Uh, the, what was it? The the mercury was yep. was in their brains, not in the blood, but it's mm -hmm. collecting in the brain. It had to go somewhere. Right? Mm -hmm. They discover this later. All right, this is going to happen. This doesn't mean we go don't trust the scientists. Right. It means no. We we need to put science, you know, uh, have a kind of proper, uh, healthy caution or modest caution with respect mm -hmm. to scientific discoveries. Right. Right. Because they change over time. That's a that's a good explanation. And then per my example, it's like. Doesn't mean don't get any vaccine, right? So you don't want measles or whatever. You're yeah, gonna, I don't yeah, know no what, polio. Thank you, know, you very yeah, much. Like, keep the polio. We'll away. take the polio vaccine. Yeah, um, but understanding it and then following science seems like the good thing to do. Yeah, and it doesn't level. mean you know if you if you express you know kind of healthy skepticism about what science can do, that doesn't make you a fascist. It doesn't make you a, a doomsday prepper. Yeah. It just makes you someone who knows something a little bit about the way scientific discoveries work, yeah. and they change over time. And you say, okay, well, you know, especially given what's at stake in some of the vaccines that are out there, you might say, well, you know, don't know if I want to put this in my body or in the body of others. Right. No, I'm not saying you, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a principled anti-vaxxer or anything like that. But, um, you know, I, I got the, I got the jab, you know, when it, when it first came out, mm -hmm. um, you know. Um, I probably would would it you know going back if I had to do it over again I probably would have done it again but the jab what do you uh, mean? The, sorry the, the, the this uh, flippant way of referring to uh, when the COVID vaccine first came out and they were okay get your Moderna shot get your Pfizer shot yep, get yep. your Johnson Johnson they were calling it the jab oh the okay jab, okay you know, <laughs> okay little, gotcha. little needle shot um, you know but but at the same time for those who didn't want to get it I saw no need to demonize them sure. So yeah, we, we have a interesting political race coming up. So I'm excited to follow it over the next year, especially yeah. with at least a little more knowledge on political uh, societies in general and ours more. So um, yeah, I think you've explained a ton of good ideas too about, and this is an idea that President Wiener definitely agrees with, um, ideas of prudence and mm -hmm. um, 
patience and kindness like these those are the most important ideas i think in political communities not if you're right or wrong that that seems like that can just get resentful and and bad yeah it's a it's a and and i know we have to wrap up but um you know it's a it's a truism but giving people the benefit of the doubt goes a long way right that doesn't mean agree with them it doesn't mean accept all of their points but you could you know it, it it makes civil disagreement a lot much easier if you begin by assuming they're not operating from bad motives or bad intentions they might be wrong right okay they might you know, might make mistakes they, their their error, their views might be filled with errors but that doesn't mean it's coming from a bad place and if we can just begin by cultivating that a little more you know that just the ability to give the person you're talking to the benefit of the doubt I'm not going to assume you're trying to be a bad person here or that you're mm-hmm. operating from from uh, uh, malign intentions. You know, uh, I mentioned that that candidate who I disagree with, you know, I don't think that candidate was operating from malign intentions. I think he genuinely loves the United States of America. Yeah. Um, he just has a, a different understanding of the common good than I do. Uh, we disagree widely about it, but I think he genuinely loves America and its citizens. I'm able, were I ever to meet him, I think I'd be able to have a very sober and humane, passionate disagreement with him, but but it would be respectful. Sure. And I think that's just, it, if we could just start with that, it would be a lot easier for us to talk to one another. Right? That you can't have a free society with many different views and celebrate diversity as we want to um, that's capable of deliberating together without that, right? Right. Free people with diverse views need to be able to come together and and manufacture consent in some way, but that requires deliberating together. And deliberating together can only work if we we give each other the benefit of the doubt. That's great. That's great, Professor. We appreciate you coming on here. This My pleasure. Amazing. This is fun. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks, Gabe.